ora koutou. Welcome back again to another uh, department of conversation. We've got Peter Ryan coming up for you today. You may not recognise the name, but he is New Zealand's very first ambassador from Ireland. So he's the Irish ambassador to New Zealand. I uh, really wanted to have Peter and he's given us a short uh, window to have a quick chat with him to talk about Brexit. Brexit's a big thing I do want to talk to him about because, you know, Northern Ireland is in two parts and what's going to happen? I'm sure we're going to talk about the rugby as well as some other bits and bobs as well. Really interesting dude, Peter Ryan, coming up for you shortly. But remember, in part, today's episode is brought to you by Velo. Velo are the experts in making wooden sunglasses, wooden glasses and wooden uh, watches as well. Good looking, crazy comfortable as well. And of course, they're wood, so they're naturally made. They're really light on your face. If you want to check them out, head to velo.co.nz. And remember, uh, if you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash DEPT of conversation and like the page, that's all you got to do, like the page, then you are in the draw for a pair of Velo glasses and a Velo wooden watch. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash DEPT of conversation. But right now, the Irish ambassador to New Zealand, it's Peter Ryan. And we're live. We're going. Number two for today. Uh, this is the Department of Conversation with Peter Ryan, the Irish ambassador to New Zealand. Good morning. Morning, Puff. I was trying to figure this out. The Irish ambassador to New Zealand... New Zealand's Irish ambassador. I assume New Zealand's Irish ambassador would be the other way, whereas you are the Irish ambassador to New Zealand. Exactly, the ambassador right. of Ireland. Now, um, I have, I always joke, actually, I'll take my hat off for a second, I always joke about my background as from the ears up, the grey-black is my English ancestry, and from the ears down, the ginger grey is my Irish ancestry. <laughs> yeah, looks like you could be in one of our ballad groups, all right. I actually, I've, I've never been to Ireland yet. Um, it's a one of it's my bucket list. You know, is the whole thing. If you could do one thing, it would be to go to Ireland. My uh, grandparents are out of Belfast. Okay, Rosslay, Belfast. Oh, yeah. um, so Northern Ireland. Um, I have a friend, long red hair. She'd never been to Ireland before. She turns up on the customs desk and they go, welcome home. You know, she'd never Good. been there before, yeah, which great. is kind of cool. I, yeah. I, I, I kind of like that. I think you'll get the same welcome with your beard and, and your name helps too, yeah? Yeah, well, my mother was Mulligan, so I could yeah. literally have been Paddy Mulligan. There you they, go. They could have been. Yep. <laughs> you can't get much more Irish than that. Mm. Um, so my grandparents came out of Belfast. Um, if people know the Troubles, yep. uh, the Falls Road is quite a big part of it. My yep. grandmother actually grew up on the Falls Road. Okay. So right smack dab in the middle of all that Catholic, Protestant stuff. Mm. Um, and I just thought, I mean to have my. I've got a. I've got a bottle, an unopened bottle of Paddy's Irish whiskey sitting at home. Okay. I, I mean to have it sitting here for us today, not necessarily to drink, but maybe, yeah, to have here with us. As well. I'm, I'm more of a Bushmills myself. That's Irish, <laughs> isn't it? Bushmills yeah. Irish? Well, Bushmills is the oldest distillery in the world, founded in 1609. I'm a good fan. Of and it's about 30 minutes drive up uh, from where your mom, where your grandmother was born. Nice. Yeah. Um, just for people who don't know. Because we think about Ireland and, and often we think about the whole island. Yep. Um, but obviously the line of demarcation between North and South. Just explain that to us, to people who aren't aware, about the difference between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Yeah, well, the island of Ireland um, uh, was divided uh, as part of the independence arrangement for um, for the island uh, in the 1920s. And as part of the negotiation of that um 
There were two states introduced on the island of Ireland. One was called Northern Ireland and one was called the Irish Free State. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a border basically that runs across the island, which runs through farms and through homes and through shops and through businesses and through schools and all kinds of things. And um, that border has been in place since the, since the 1920s. And thankfully, as part of the peace process since the 1990s, the border has largely disappeared. Uh, so if you were driving across the path now today, you wouldn't you wouldn't know where the border started mm. and ended. You'll just drive from, you'll just drive. There'll be no uh, army checkpoints anymore. None of that militarisation is there anymore. And it's very important for us that it remains that way. And that's why we're so concerned about Brexit. Yeah. And so uh, determined to protect the peace process that's there. So Northern Ireland, uh, you see Northern Ireland in the Commonwealth Games because it's a part of the Commonwealth. Yep. Whereas uh, you call it the Republic of Ireland in yep. the bottom, Ireland um, is not. So now that the UK, yep. which Northern Ireland is a part of, yep. has or is in the process of leaving the EU, yep. there is a massive question yep. because there'll be different import laws, there'll be you know all sorts of different rules and regulations between the UK yep. and Europe, Ireland being a part of Europe, What's going to happen? I mean, this seems. I, I when I when I read about this, I thought, okay, so it's time for reunification of Ireland. Mm. This is the time mm. because actually, unless you're going to build a wall, a big beautiful mm. wall, mm. Um, what else are they going to do? I think there's a commitment on the part of the Irish, British, and the European Union administrations to ensure that there's a continuity of a seamless border on the island of Ireland. So we won't see whatever about whatever arrangements there might be between Great Britain and the rest of the European Union, those arrangements won't necessarily apply on the island of Ireland. The island of Ireland will continue to be seamless, open. Um, We have a free travel area between Britain and Ireland. We have a common travel agreement since the 1920s in place there. So Irish people don't need passports to visit Britain. British people don't need passports to come uh, to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, in, 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 in Northern Ireland, uh, uniquely in the world, people can be Irish or British or both. Uh, they can have that national identity recognised. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a commitment not to discriminate against them on the basis of their national identity. They can have an aspiration to United Ireland or they can have a commitment to the union with Great Britain. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty special arrangement that's been made. And I think there's a real commitment to protect it uh, in the EU and Britain and in Ireland and indeed the US and other partners, including New Zealand, actually. Um, so your New Zealand tax dollars uh, since the 1990s have been used to support some of the peace, um, some of the peace building that's taken place in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And that's quite, quite a special contribution by the people in New Zealand uh, to that. And that's been in, that's been since the late 1990s. New Zealand has been involved in that. Mm-hmm. So when, for example, there'll be different tariffs and different um, costs to deliver goods and services between the UK and Europe, once Brexit's happened, how will, under the current border between Northern and Southern, Northern and Ireland, um, how will they stop, for example, people bringing things into Ireland and shoot them up to the UK and get around those tariffs? I mean, this to me seemed to be the questions that were happening um, you know, months, years ago, that th- there could need to be a port of entry between the two, which you're saying there's an agreement you don't want to do. But what happens when goods start flooding in this way, um, getting around the the rules that the, uh, that the UK has just brought in? 
I think this is one of the trickiest questions probably around mm. the Brexit negotiations. And in the end, uh, you know, a lot of the focus returned to this also. And I think it's it, it's testament to the success of the peace process and the success of the European Union project also, in fact, that this is um, this remains a moot point. And I think we've seen a transformation in Ireland, uh, north and south, I would say, um, during our membership of the European Union, because we joined with Britain together in 1973. And since that time, the economy and the society has been transformed north and south. And you've seen that yourself, I'm sure, with the marriage equality, yeah. with all the other social issues that were dealt with in the south, where, you know, really the influence of Europe and our membership of Europe and the feeling that we were part of a community of 600 million people mm. uh, really, really uh, brought a great, about fabulous, you know, economic, social and cultural change, I would say, in Ireland, North and South. And the majority of people, as you know, in Northern Ireland actually voted to remain in the European Union. So you have a, you, you, you have a pretty tricky situation, I say. I don't think it's insoluble. I think with that commitment to avoid a hard border, mm. a return to a hard border, with that commitment from so many of the partners who are engaged and all parties on the island of Ireland are committed to making sure that a hard border doesn't return. So you, you quite often have the agreement at this level, um, yep. government, yep. you know, management, yep. uh, but then you've got other groups, yep. and I'm thinking about when the troubles were around, yep. there were some other groups involved, yep. some other groups that my relatives were a part of out yep. of the Catholic Northern Ireland part, yep. um, that um, that might go, well, stuff you, you know, lawmakers, yep. we think this. I guess you've got your position as a as a politician, as an ambassador yep. up here. What about on the ground level? Are there rumblings? Are there concerns amongst the people about what could be coming? Is there concerns of uh, perhaps travelling back to borders, etc., of days gone by? I think there's always concerns, uh, but I think Pat, I think the reality is that there's now no, there are now no impediments to the participation of people from all strands of society mm. in political life and business life and the normal day-to-day -day life in society. That was not the case in, in the north of Ireland at different times since its establishment. Its very establishment was contested. Mm -hmm. And, you know, n n the, the north of Ireland has a fully participating, fully democratically overseen police force uh, it has, uh, you know, fair employment legislation. It has a whole set of checks and balances now that make sure that it will never return to mm. what was there before. And the gun has more or less been has more or less been removed from the island of Ireland. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people who might be hell bent on using these opportunities and things like Brexit mm. to see if they can build some support for Stir something out. Yeah, but I think. The people of the the people of the island, the ballot box is the best way to test it, and there are, there's no there isn't a single rep elected representative of a group that is proposing any military or violent action, and I think that's a real testament to how far we've travelled in thirty years. We've addressed the major issues, uh, the sense of identity mm -hmm. um, is 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 no longer defining for people that this doesn't define your relationship with the state, for example, whereas in the past that might have been the case. But thankfully, it's gone. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you say people in Northern Ireland can like take an Irish passport. Yep. 
is there any stats around that? Do people do people in Northern Ireland primarily identify as Irish as opposed to sort of British? Um, yeah, these things these things are always tricky, and I think this is the beauty of uh, head, sectarian headcounts and uh, headcounts are not a healthy thing on the right. island of Ireland. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, to be honest, our history shows us that. I think one of the one of the absolute innovations around the around the peace process in the north of Ireland was that you could be both. Yeah. So you could be just, you, you could say, well, I, I'm paying honour to my family's Irish heritage. But in fact, you know, I, I, I personally feel loyal to the British state, for example. Right. And I can hold both passports. So we have, um, we, I, I'm sure there are all sorts of statistics out there, but uh, just um, on, on an ad hoc one, when the Brexit, very soon after the Brexit vote was announced, our passport office in Belfast very famously ran out of passport application forms. <laughs> so that'll give you an idea. I think that a lot of people wanted to exercise uh, their right to, to, to an Irish passport. And we think it's very, I think it's personally very healthy. Mm. I meet a lot of people in New Zealand who are of a British and an Irish heritage. I previously served in Hong Kong. I met a lot of people there who previously have a British and Irish heritage who quite happily hold two passports. And whether you hold a passport or not, in fact, doesn't really matter too much mm. uh, for me because it's, it's, it's what's in your heart. And this is the point of what John Hume and others were working towards was to build a situation where it is normal to, be a, to have a complex identity because the history is complex. It's not just a straightforward exercise. Has there ever been talk or is there ever talk, uh, I'm not obviously asking for your official position, um, but of secession from the UK for Northern Ireland to kind of reunify as one state? Or is that just something that's not even, it's, it's irrelevant to the, it's a moot question as you said before. Yeah, well, I think I think the um, I think the uh, quite a few of our leading uh, politicians have in recent times, and uh, almost all of our major political parties will, would have the unity of Ireland as one of their uh, aims. Okay, um, I think it's all about trying to win hearts and minds. I think it's all about trying to improve the lives of people. It's trying to ensure that there's no return to the uh, sectarian violence that was there before. Mm. It's trying to make sure that there's prosperity there across all parts of the society. There are still places where you may have seen that young uh, journalist, Lara McKee, uh, was 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 uh, killed a, a number of weeks ago uh, and in the margins of, of riots in Derry, in the Craigan estate where she was killed. I mean, the, the level of unemployment is still unacceptably high. The people there will say, well, we didn't get a, a dividend from the peace process. Belfast certainly did if you visit yeah. it. When when you visit it, you'll see how prosperous it is. You'll mm -hmm. see how many visitors are coming. The Titanic Centre is a wonderful success. You'll see parts of the city coming back to life uh, and flourishing the way it should. Um, but there's a lot more work to be done, I think, to encourage other parts and other investors and overseas investors and business people and so on to come in and to give that confidence back. Um, so I think most of our political parties and... Uh, uh, myself personally, I'd love to see increased prosperity there. I'd love to see more um, collaboration across all levels of society. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see a situation where we don't instantly pigeonhole people uh, or their political views depending on their background. Um, we see, for example, in, in, in the unionist community, the loyalist community now, we see some uh, growth of interest in the Irish language and a recognition that, in fact, 
the Protestant clergy were the greatest champions of the Irish language in the 18th century. And this is something that Irish language activists like or scholars or people with an interest in it, we always knew that. Mm-hmm. But because of the troubles and because of all these things that people were pigeonholing others and corralling them into certain belief systems, if you like, people weren't perhaps as comfortable as in reaching out to other parts of our culture as they might have been. What do you think about uh, looking at New Zealand culture, how, how there's a resurgence of today, of Māori? Do you think that's a similar, there's a parallel there? Oh, I think there is. I think there's definitely parallel. I think the Maori, the Maori tell me that they see a parallel yeah. there. <laughs> um, so I can only take them at their word for it. Uh, we've been very lucky. A, a large group of them went to Ireland last uh, November uh, with T3W, led by Barry Souter, and they went to Belfast and they went to Derry and Sligo and Cork and uh, Galway as well. And they, they, been, they were looking at the Irish language industry um, in the Gaeltacht, the Irish-speaking areas of Ireland. I mean, our biggest... Our biggest success story probably in the last 30 years has been in Belfast, where there's a, a, a cultural inn on the Falls Road now, um, and a, a Gaeltacht centre, a, a Gaeltacht region, uh, an Irish-speaking region with businesses and buildings very similar to this, with little right. businesses popping up, but doing it through the medium of Irish. Wow. And these guys think global. You know, they may act local, but they're really thinking global. And they're, they're making programming for companies in the US, and they're... Uh, building businesses for the European Union and so on. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Irish is now an official language of the European Union has meant uh, four to 500 people have been employed as translators in the European Union. So suddenly now there's more of a pathway for youngsters um, uh, to to see the relevance yep. of Irish in an, in, in, in an economic sense, which is fine, yep. uh, as well as in the cultural sense. Well, you, you would have got what a lot of people here in New Zealand said for a long time about like, learning Māori in schools is pointless because yep. it's not a commercial language, when actually, yep. you know, within New Zealand now that Māori, well, not now it's been for a long time, but yep. the, as the official language, uh, you know, working in broadcasting, working in government, working in tourism, working as translators, there is actually a huge uh, commercial value and commercial worth to the Māori language within the country of New Zealand because, you know, we are a, a, a bilingual, a multilingual, if you include sign language, yeah. um, country, and, and it does have a commercial value. Yes, maybe Mandarin has a commercial value on the world scale, yep. but but Māori has a commercial value on New Zealand scale, no question, and that must be the same. Yeah, and it's, it's just in, in, in your DNA here, yeah. when, you, when you touch down here. And, uh, one, you know, one of the things that people um, talk to me about, for example, is the, is the, the place name. Um, uh, geography across New Zealand mm-hmm. and, the, and you know the nomenclature across place names we have identical system in Ireland if you want to understand Ireland you need to understand the Irish language because it explains to you yep. where it is yep. you're, you know you're in you're in you're in Derry which is where, where the oak trees were born mm-hmm. this is why you understand this is why people wear were wearing oak leaf on their on their football jerseys it un, you understand it instantly. Uh, when you understand the Irish roots of something. And I think it's very special to, to find new ways to introduce that to more people and to give that pride back because whether we like it or not, a very similar situation pertained as to Toreo as to the Irish language that when you went to school, you were told you have to teach, you have to learn English. This is the language of the world. This is the best thing and so on and so forth. And then many, many Irish, uh, Irish-speaking parents or grandparents would would only speak in English mm. to their children or grandchildren, and in fact, an oral history in many ways was lost, or parts of that oral history was lost. And in our case, 
we've been speaking it for about 3,000 years, so it's the oldest vernacular language in all of the European Union. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a real sense that this, this stuff is special to us. And it's also special to access it through English, so it doesn't matter if you, do, if you, can't, speak, if you can't speak the Irish language. You don't necessarily have to go and study morning, noon and night. You can, you can dip your toe in the water even by reading the great Irish writers. And if you read Heaney and if you read Joyce and if you read Beckett, you'll see that the way that they write English is slightly different. Yeah, yeah, And that gives you a little insight. Hopefully that will give you a bit of a, uh, a bit of a inspiration to go and look a little bit further and say, well, to try to understand quite what's going on there. What are you showing us, Jace? Oh, you were just talking about um, you know, Tereo Māori place names and so I thought I'd Google some of the long place names in Ireland, so... The thing I like about it is, and you're hinting at this, is what they mean. So there's a place um, out to yep. past the airport here in Dunedin yep. uh, called Wahingatui. Yep. And Wahingatui means uh, the place where they separated the birds. Yep. So actually you know why it was called that and yes. what they did that. Yeah. Also, I think that oral history is so important. I've got um, a friend who received the oral history of his, uh, you know, his ancestors' land. Mm. And he'd never set foot on that land. Mm. And he went back to that land as an adult mm. and approached the farmer who now owns that land and said, can we walk up the mountain? He walked up the mountain and there was a local historian with him. And while he was up the mountain on land he'd never set foot on, that his ancestors were on, he said, you know, over there was the par, over there was that, over there was that. And this historian said, oh, you've studied this. And he goes, oh, no, I've never been here before. Mm-hmm. But those were the oral wow. histories. Mm. And actually just last night, not New Zealand, but the Aboriginal culture mm. i was watching uh, on netflix um a david attenborough uh you know documentary series about the reef up mm. there and uh, aborigines do a dance talking about how the water um levels rose so quickly over the space of a person's lifetime mm. it moved inland about 20 or 30 kilometers mm. and there's a dance that tells the story mm. and the point that david attenborough was making from four thousand years ago it was four thousand mm. years ago this happened mm. is that science now with all the scanning they can do of the ocean floor is just proving this mm. so wow. they had this oral history that for mm. four thousand years they've been singing the song that mm. describes something that happens mm. that science is just discovering happened mm. crazy it's yeah, like it it's crazy. too crazy yeah I know you've got a hard finish here yep. because you have got a lunch, but before yep. you shoot off, I yep. do have to talk to you about the rugby. Okay. Because obviously Irish knocked off your blacks in uh, November of last year. Yep. But then since then, they were being touted as the number one team in the world. It hasn't been going quite so well. And obviously in New Zealand, you know, rugby is a religion. And I'm wondering, you know, for, as an official Irish representative, what's going to happen this year with the Rugby World Cup? Well, if I knew that, if I knew that, uh, I'd be on my way to Paddy Power Bookies or something. Um, <laughs> I think the um, uh, well, it took us 120 years to beat the All Blacks in the first instance, yeah, and then we managed to do it twice in the space of three years. So we were delighted with that. I think that was our. It was a season to remember for us last season. Definitely, it, everything went our way. The Grand Slam, the Australian Tour, yeah, getting over the line against the All Blacks. So that that led to the canonization, as you might know, Joe Schmidt in Ireland, <laughs> Saint Joe, a very popular guy, and uh, yeah, a much loved, uh, you know, a much loved guy. And I think it's as much for the style and the manner that he's brought to the whole Irish rugby scene, mm-hmm. frankly, as to what is achieved, what his team has achieved on the pitch, as the way in which he's carried himself, the way they carry themselves, the way they talk about 
what it is they're trying to do as a group. It's it really you would recognise a lot of the language that's being used, but for us in Ireland, probably maybe the first time that that's being used in a rugby setting, mm. we would have that in our Gaelic sports setting, yep. which would be amateur and that whole ethos of you know leaving the thing better than you found it and cleaning up after yourself. You know that would be in in our volunteer ethos in the Gaelic sports, which mm-hmm. would be very strong in Ireland, as you know. Uh, so rugby is about our fourth, third or fourth most popular sport. Um, the, the the way that the rugby uh, units were set up, the provincial groups in Ireland has worked out quite well. So we've got Ulster, uh, Munster, Leinster and Connacht. Leinster just be, just fell down at the last um, hurdle against Saracens in their effort to win a fifth European Cup. But so I think we're pretty good. I think we're in a pretty good place. Uh, I don't think we have the player pool maybe that we'd like to have. Uh, but I think that heading, you know, a couple of our, our leading players, Roy Best, our captain now, has said he's going to retire after the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Our out half, young Johnny, young Johnny, I call him, um, is 33 now. He's kind of been through the wars a little bit. Um, but look, we're very hopeful. Uh, we're very hopeful to go there and give it a cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never got beyond the quarterfinals in the World Cup. So I think you can judge um, you, you can judge my view of the thing uh, from that. If we make it to the semis, it'll be a huge achievement considering our, what our player pool is. Um, and the All Blacks are the ones to beat, and that's the reality. And I don't I don't begrudge them the the pressure that they're under because I think the um, there's huge expectation around them. I think I understand that level of expectation better now since coming here. Really? Um, yeah, it's really heavy on them, and the way that you know. The dogs in the street here can stop you and discuss the All Blacks with you. It's it's kind of amazing, really. You know. I, you know what? I I I'm I don't know if the ABs will win it this year. Yep. Only because they're obviously number one team in the world, have been for a long time. Yep. But statistically speaking, everyone has an off day, an off season, an off. And I just think doing three in a row is almost the double Everest. You know, and I yeah. just think, statistically speaking, it doesn't matter who's the best team in the world on day one of the tournament. I mean, as, as can be seen by the number of times, you know, the number one team has not won it. I just, I think to do three in a row is, it feels insurmountable. And not because they couldn't do it, but I just think, statistically speaking, it's probably improbable. Yeah, you're probably right. And I think I think Japan will bring its own demands also. I yep. think it's a very long tournament. Uh, I think, you know... You guys know Japan better than we do. Even more guys playing there over the years, but it, it it's pretty demanding exercise going up there. And I think the um, I think there's going to always going to be a few surprises thrown up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of course, our old enemy next door turned in a very good year this year, mm-hmm. so they're ones to look out for. And your your guys next door to you here, Australia. I think are due a good World Cup after the after the couple of seasons that they've had. Yep. Um, and I think it's if it's a question of trying to avoid uh, too heavy an attrition rate during the early rounds, and uh, who can get to the the knockout bits in the healthiest possible. Well, not even the early, early rounds. We've already lost one of our fullbacks, and the other one uh, from here in Otago is is on the ropes at the moment. So we shall see. Um, yep. You have to go, but I was going to say yep. very quickly. Yep. Um, why are you the first Irish ambassador to New Zealand? Why is why are you why has this not happened before? And um, how long is your term? What happens next? Uh, my term should be for for four year term. Um, why am I the first? Because a decision was made by the New Zealand government to open uh, an embassy in Dublin, and your first ambassador there is a guy called Brad Burgess, who's a Dunedin guy. So you'll have to get him on a future podcast. Definitely. And. Um, I was asked to come here having been in uh, Hong Kong for the last four years. 
Uh, I think it's about time that we we exchanged ambassadors. Yeah. I think maybe the reason we didn't was because we knew each other so well. <laughs> didn't need to. And there was no issues <laughs> going on between us. <clears throat> and, we're, and we're very lucky. We've got great communities in, in, um, in both countries. We've got about up to about 20,000 Irish-born people in New Zealand. And then we've got many wonderful um, uh, descendants of Irish-born people like yourself, like with Peter Burke who's here with me today, who's written this fabulous book called True to Ireland. Uh, we have, we have, uh, we're really lucky here. In fact, at one stage, New Zealand was named after the provinces of Ireland, as you know. There was a new Leinster, a new Munster, and a new Ulster. Mm -hmm. So for about six years in New Zealand history, it was actually named after part of Ireland. So the connections are deep. They're very strong, and for me, it's it's about trying to broaden those a little bit, build on what's there. I'm going to be at the uh, university later today, uh, and I'm trying to meet as wide a range of friends of Ireland as possible. And you're off to the bog now for lunch? Is Absolutely, it yeah. It's, it's not something you get to say every day, but no. yeah, I am looking forward, looking forward to it. All right, Peter Ryan, thanks for joining us for a few minutes. Thanks, William, bud. Thanks, Jason. All right, guys, there you go. A bit of a quickie for you today, but uh, thankfully Peter Ryan gave us a few minutes to have a chat with him and we were we were good to go and thought worth getting in, especially to find out that interesting stuff about Brexit. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Today's episode in part is brought to you by Velo, velo.co.nz. They are the experts in wooden glasses and wooden watches. We've got uh, a pair to give away, a pair of glasses and a, and a watch as well. All you've got to do is like our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash uh, D-E-P-T of conversation. 10% uh, of all the profits when you purchase a pair of Velo glasses goes to A21 with the aim of eradicating human trafficking through awareness, interve intervention and aftercare. Of course, they're doing good work. They're also a good product made of natural, sustainable wood. They are Velo and you can check them out at velo.co.nz. Uh, coming up later this week, Friday, we will be chatting with Christian Picciolini. Christian is a former white supremacist. If you Google his name, you will see his name pop up with uh, places like Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, BBC. He's talked all over the world and he is often called on to uh, uh, offer a perspective on white supremacy. He is an ex-white supremacist. He fights the world of white supremacy, but he has an insight into it. And we will be trying to get that insight on Friday. And uh, obviously that was based around the mosque attacks of um, uh, several weeks ago. And the reason we want to talk to Christian is to maybe get a bit of insight into those sorts of events. Christian Picciolini on Friday morning. Until then, hooroo. Hey